Welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. Right as I was about to do this introduction, I realized this is two weeks in a row. Last week, I was able to do the introduction. Robert asked me um, if I could do it again this week. He hasn't quite given me a performance review, but I'll give this uh, tacit performance review. And what he is scribbling right down right now, he is taking notes on me and uh, my job here. So, hey, welcome back. Um, we're so glad to be with you. A lot of stuff to talk about. A lot of things have happened but as we normally say, I am a ministry associate with the PCA ministry, ministry to state. Robert Hassler is also a ministry associate with the PCA ministry, ministry to state. We do ministry pastoral care up here uh, in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. You can follow us on Twitter at RD Hassler and at Stockdale Will. Uh, and then leave us a review after listening, whether you like us or not, which um, is a point of contention between Robert and I, if that's good advice to give. I, I think I think it is very good advice, uh, a very good recommendation. Yeah, we haven't gotten any hate mail yet, so I guess you've been proven right on this one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no actual verbiage. But hey, so what we want to do is we wanted to kind of walk through what's been happening since um, last Thursday when we released an episode. Saturday was a big uh, reveal day where Donald Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett. And then all that has happened since that time. And then uh, last night was the first presidential debate of 2020. Watched that 90 minutes, which on the one hand, I thought it flew by. And on the other hand, I thought that it was an insanely long. Oh, that's funny you say that. I was about to say an excruciatingly long 90 minutes. Well, I, when I found out we were 30 minutes in, I was like, wow, that's incredible. I guess that's what discomfort does to you. Actually, that's terrible. That's actually not true. But I did wonder, what is more uncomfortable, the early Michael Scott in the office that is like the most uncomfortable or the Donald Trump, Joe Biden 2020 election debate? See, that's a very good question. I saw a lot of people comparing it to the Scott's Tots episode. Like, it's just that it's that cringy. You're just like, Oh, like, I find myself, I get that thing where I get embarrassed for people, you know, that, and you kind of have to look away the first five minutes, the, the debate, it started. And I had to like walk into my kitchen and like pretend to do something because I was like, I just can't, I can't. And then I got over it and then I was able to sit there and do it. But I was, that was mostly because I was on my phone most of the night. So that's the only way I got through it. It was that uncomfortable. So yeah, are- it was, it was very cringy. Oh my goodness. You are an empathetic embarrassy. That's really powerful. That's very powerful. But hey, so first we have Amy Coney Barrett. Um, she has been nominated to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The way you framed that, it sounded like she's on the show right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like some listeners like, holy smokes. So she has been emailing, asking to come on, but I said, <laughs> hey, hey, Ames. You got enough to work on right now. Let's just stay focused. And once you, do, once you have your first decision, then you can come on and talk. But let's, let's stay focused on one thing at a time. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy nomination. Um, I mean that more so to do with the fact that uh, we know we're getting a, a nominee to replace, a very conservative nominee to replace a very liberal uh, RBG. Um, and we are, what, just, what, six weeks away from the election? So just a really interesting time for this. Um, I don't think it was that surprising. I mean, we were, we were talking about it last episode and that was sort of the rumors. And um, I think probably the, the decision that uh, most people were expecting, but we, we kind of talked about how maybe some, her Catholic faith might come up as something that might be a point of contention for a lot of folks. But I don't know if I was quite prepared for some of the other things 
that I saw. I'd be interested in, in sort of what were what were some of the takes that you were seeing on her nomination at once it had become official. I don't know if I've seen anything that is uh, new regarding her Catholic faith that hadn't already been brought up after her nomination. There are multiple signs on like street lamps around DC that have a picture of her face and like it's a darkened picture with save our healthcare, save our healthcare, save our healthcare. Don't vote, you know, make sure senators don't vote for Amy Coney Barrett. So that that is one thing that's interesting to me of the of the big concerns that people have for her nomination and it seems like eventual appointment is healthcare and Roe v. Wade. So the overturning of the Affordable Care Act and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I know David Brooks wrote a piece about why that uh, you shouldn't worry about her overturning uh, healthcare. And I, I, I'm, I guess I'm surprised that um, there's, there doesn't seem as equal concern out there, at least immediately about overturning Roe v. Wade. Yeah. I mean, I definitely saw very similar things. I, I mean, I want to point it out because it was, it was a very small minority, but it was a vocal minority that there were a number of folks, not just like randoms, you know, on Twitter who have like a hundred followers. I'm talking like blue check mark people within, you know, sort of these circles who were saying some things about, or I guess casting into question or doubt the authenticity of her, her adopting um, her two children from Haiti, which is just really disgusting and gross. And I, I think you're seeing a vast majority of the Democratic Party and the people who oppose her nominee steering away from that language. They they know they don't want to have that. They don't want to have that conversation on the Senate floor. Oh man, Ibram Kendi, watching him, that guy is losing it. He said some of the most, you almost want to call it demented or deranged to see what he sees around every, every under every stone and around every corner is some effort of... Uh, white supremacy and white hegemony. Yeah, I mean, taking the the opportunity or the nominee of Amy Coney Barrett to have a discussion about white colonialism and kidnapping and things like that is just something I think that most people in the party establishment want, in the Democratic Party establishment want to stay away from. I mean, they don't they don't want to have that conversation. They know that they don't want to accuse any adopting parents out there of being colonialists and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's just not something you want to. It's unseemly. It's gross. You don't want to talk about it. Um, I think you're right that though that the the main driving criticisms and concerns have been Roe v. Wade and then what she might do to the ACA. I don't know. I'm confused though about what the issue is with the ACA because my understanding now is that the individual mandate is sort of that's sort of being decided politically. And I know the president talked a lot about it last night at the debate. The only things that I'm I'm still sort of or I guess I'm questioning about with the ACA as it relates to the ACA is religious freedom exemptions. And if the concern is that Amy Coney Barrett is going to side on the, on the behalf of the little sisters of the four, then I'm not that concerned about what it's going to, you know, what her effects going to have on the ACA while she's on the court, just because I see those more as religious liberty issues, not affordable care act issues. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. And I think the questions of religious liberty are ones that we'll talk about a little more in a minute, I think. But as we mentioned last time, she has been questioned about the dogma lives loudly within you and what role will her Catholic faith. She has been adamant about the fact that that will play no role in her as a judge. And I think one of the benefits of her holding to the view she does on the Constitution 
is that in fact she does view it as uh, not a living document and so she is to interpret it as it was originally intended which should i think give people comfort in knowing uh what is going to be her procedure going forth I, I, as opposed to a different philosophy right what's been really interesting also is to watch the articles that come out they're digging into all these different organizations mostly religious that she's involved with um What's the one people of praise? I think that's the one that's getting the most attention right now. Right. And it, it's just kind of funny to watch religion reporters who aren't necessarily or particularly religious at all, write about like Christian doctrines and themes. And so like, I think the last one that I saw was like, Amy Coney Barrett was, is part of a extremist religious group uh, that believes wives should submit to their husbands. And I was kind of like, yeah, but that's that's sort of like the Sparknotes version of what Christians believe about, you know, gender roles and and things like that. It, it's just kind of funny to me. It's like, it, it's just clearly spoken from a point of like, we don't really understand what's going on. We didn't really take the time to understand, but we think it sounds nefarious, so we'll publish it. Right. There was actually an article I saw, uh, I think Business Insider ran it, but it was one of the editors at the New York Times was admitting that, hey, we do not understand religion. And that was very good. I think most religion reporters do not understand religion. They don't understand doctrine. They don't understand its role. They come at it as sociological journalists. I mean, they treat it as a kind of anthropological, like, and I know I'm, I said sociology and then anthropology, but they, like almost a attempt to, you know, they can have an anthropo- anthropologist remove because most of them aren't religious. And so they view it as some kind of like artifact left over from some bygone age that is just very curious to them. It leads to a lot of bad writing, bad understanding of of religion. And I think one of the examples of that right now has been people's responding to Capitol Hill Baptist Church's lawsuit against the city of Washington, D.C., which I am I'm Presbyterian, I'm not a Baptist, but I'm very thankful for what they're doing. And I think that they have done it very well with a lot of character and dignity and um, that I hope that it continues to move forward in their favor. So for folks that aren't maybe necessarily as caught up on the story, uh, obviously you you live pretty close to Capitol Hill Baptists. Um, I know you know some folks that, that go to church there. I mean, what what's the story? What's going on with Capitol Hill Baptists? Well, so when the pandemic came out, they decided that they can't meet in their building regularly on Sundays. And so what they did was they decided eventually after a couple months to meet out in Virginia in a field to gather as a CDC guided number of people at an appropriate distance and do worship service there. In the meantime, they have appealed to the city of Washington, D.C. to allow them to meet in the city, not even in their building. They have said, hey, we would like to meet outside following CDC guidelines like everybody else who is truthfully protesting is able to do. Permits have been granted to people who are protesting. Permits have not been granted to Capitol Hill Baptist Church deciding to meet within CDC guidelines. So after this long time, and the city hasn't even told them no, they have just completely been silent. They have not responded. They have not sent them an email. They have not called them. They have just completely given them the cold shoulder. So after all this, they had a meeting, they had a members meeting, and in true congregationalist fashion that they are a congregationalist church, they voted in favor of moving forward with the lawsuit. So they filed a lawsuit against the city of Washington, D.C. saying, hey, you are, be- you are not upholding your office 
and your responsibility. They have allowed for, again, people to meet for other reasons, but not for churches. And they say, hey, this is not uh, equitable. This is not fair. And I'll tell you, since they have submitted this lawsuit, they, they haven't responded. The city has not responded to them still. How long has it been now? Over a week. Wow. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, I mean, I think this is going to be maybe, for people in D.C., it's it's certainly high profile. I mean, Capitol Hill Baptist is, is a big church. It's it's well-renowned. I mean, Mark Dever is, is well-known um, nationally. I, I, I think that's safe to say. Strong leader. Um, it's interesting to me that that's sort of like also coming on the heels of John MacArthur's church out in California and, and their decision to also sue the state. But what strikes me is just how different these two lawsuits are. You know, there's a lot to, there's a lot to debate about the statement that came out of John MacArthur's church about, is this the proper role between of the relationship between the church and the state is, is this traditionally and historically in line with, with church precedent on these, on such matters. And, you know, they, they wanted to have a completely normal service to sort of regardless of what's going on with COVID. And that, and that was sort of well debated as being, is this too, is this unreasonable? Is this not being unreasonable? Blah, blah. When I read the Capitol Hill Baptist story, it's like always stri- striking. It's like, they're not even asking to like meet inside without masks or sort of the other stuff that was going on at John MacArthur's church. I mean, they're, they're petitioning to have a service that is completely like follow CDC guidelines. That seems to me to just be so on the surface reasonable. Capitol Hill Baptist is different than a lot of other churches, if it's safe to say, and that they didn't really adopt the same sort of practices immediately post COVID. Isn't that right? Like they did something a little bit different. Right. They didn't do online services. They, right. they um, Mark Dever would send out letters, these emails, and then uh, <clears throat> they would do an old sermon series together. But it is different. And, and we probably disagree with this disagree with each other on this. I don't have as much issue with John MacArthur doing what he's doing, how he's done it. I think he has overly gone a little too political from the pulpit, but um, look, Governor Newsom has not uh, upheld equally uh, the law for different people. And so I, I'm, I'm actually grateful that he's doing, I think that Newsom has uh, abdicated some of his responsibilities, but to stick with Capitol Hill Baptist, uh, and how they've responded. What I want to point out is a Washington Post article that came out by the, the religion reporter for the Washington Post, Michelle Borstein. She writes about it. She reports on what's happening. And one of the things that she says that was so weird is she's like, look, uh, Capitol Hill Baptist has done a good job responding to the race riots. Uh, they have given Bible studies on white privilege. Uh, they have been handed out water during a march and a protest. They have marched and they have talked about the need for justice. And the article seems to insinuate that because Capitol Hill Baptist is pro-justice for George Floyd, which look, we should all be pro-justice. That's not a thing. But that them falling in line with this cultural moment has somehow given them the privilege that the, the mayor should respond as if the situation and their actions in the situation cover them in the constitution, which is ridiculous. And I, I thought um, her interpretation of this event, the religion reporter as somehow earning them the right was one ridiculous. And the second of all, uh, what does she think the constitution grants and under what conditions? Right. Yeah. You can't frame religious liberty rights under the language of, of earning or that, that just, that, that demeans it to some sort of second class 
citizen. Well, it removes it from rights, which is the whole point. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. We don't, talk, we don't talk about rights in any other way as to like earning. We talk about losing rights. Like if you commit a felony, you lose rights to like Second Amendment and voting, uh, for example, in our country right now. But we don't really talk about like earning rights. That's very, it's a very different sort of thing. Yeah, and then Christianity Day comes out on the other side and they will, of course, Capitol Hill Baptist wants to meet in person because they're a congregationalist. And it's like, okay, now you guys miss it. Yeah. Uh, you guys miss the importance of this is that the mayor is not upholding the same same standards. So, yeah. of course, it's Christianity Today, and I don't know what their deal is a lot of times, but I shouldn't well, be so surprised. My wife made a good point that religious liberty is often only spoken of in terms of Christianity, and that's just so not that's so not true. I mean, religious liberty is for all religions, and that's just so true and highlighted by the fact that I think one of the first groups that I ever saw coming out and doing any sort of organized uh, defiance of COVID rules and, and shutdown orders were um, Jewish communities up in New York City when Mayor Bill Blasio would not let them meet for, I think, funerals and, and other things like that. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's important for people to realize when, when religious conservatives talk about religious liberty, I mean, it, it, it really is coming in the language of of all religions. I mean, people are really cognizant of the fact it just so happens that usually the people leading this thing tend to be Christian. Um, so I'm very interested to see what happens with, with Capitol Baptist lawsuit. I think the city has to an- give an answer soon. And I, I just, it, it's really hard for me to come up with the argument of why they can't. I'm trying to see it from the other side, but I really can't figure it out. Well, I mean, we can look at Muriel Bowser's past acts, how she has acted this whole summer and this whole shutdown. And you have to figure that there is some, with all, with all the talk that has been going on about Amy Coney Barrett and her Roman Catholic faith, the potential role her Roman Catholic faith could play on the court uh, if she is nominated and confirmed, well, she's already been nominated, so if she's confirmed, and this issue about religious liberty with this major uh, player in D.C., you have to be thinking that she is wondering, how, what, how's the wind going to blow on this? and then make a political decision accordingly. But I think additionally, we need to be praying for them and their leadership. I, I'm kind of hinted at this, but I'm just very impressed with how they've gone about this and they have done it very honorably. They've done it very respectfully. Um, they've done it very well. And uh, there is no real reason for them not to be granted their request. And again, even if they hadn't behaved very well, that still doesn't change the right they have to gather. So speaking of behaving well or not well. Good transition. Oh my goodness. I woke I think up I know morning. where you're going. Oh, I woke up this morning and realized that it wasn't a dream or a nightmare, that oh. it actually happened. The debate, the first presidential debate of 2020 actually took place last night in Cleveland and it was a disaster. It really was. I mean... Uh, the piece that I really liked uh, this morning was from a guy named Matthew Walter over at The Week. And it, the title was just The Worst Presidential Debate in History. And I think that's about right. I mean, we, we'll get to the candidates in a second. I mean, poor Chris Wallace. I mean, that guy had an impossible job. He did not come out looking good. No. And, and I actually think the criticism of, his, of him is unfair. Okay. Um, so my theory is that the reason why he wasn't able to really step in and moderate is because 
the crowd wasn't allowed to cheer and boo. So like in every debate, primary, doesn't matter, you know, in every debate, there's a crowd that cheers and boos and they create uh, organic stopping points where the conversation stops and then the moderator has an opportunity to jump in and, and start the conversation again. And so without having that, I mean, it was just, it was just an hour and a half stream of consciousness and there weren't commercial breaks. There was nothing to stop it. I mean, Chris Wallace would try and he'd, he'd get there and then he'd, he'd stop him and then he'd try to start the next segment and then immediately in we were back to the races. And I think it's fair to say that the president was the leader in that. Um, he really did take a position that he was going to, he was going to comment on every single thing that came out of Joe Biden's mouth. And he didn't care if Joe Biden was still in mid-sentence when he did that. But I, I think towards the end of the night, especially, you could tell that Biden was, was frustrated and he was doing it as well. But it was just a sort of a poor performance. I mean, I remember, uh, or last night I was just sitting there going like, I remember in 1960, like the debates between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, like Richard Nixon looked a little sweaty and people were like, oh, he's too unprofessional to be the president. And then I compare that to what I just watched last night. It's like, wow, we've come so far as a country. Right. We have. And the first interruption was instigated by Donald Trump, that the president was the first one to interrupt. So he did start the night off that way. They both treated each other in really terrible ways, though. I thought it was especially mean when Donald Trump uh, attacked Biden's intelligence and said, you're not smart. Don't talk to me about smarts. I just thought that's, that's very, very unkind to go after his son's drug problems. Also, I think was very tacky. I mean, was very hurtful. I also think that the accusations that Biden made, you can't call someone a clown and tell someone to shut up. President of the United States. The president of the United States. And that's kind of led me to wonder in situations like this, you shouldn't tell anyone to shut up. And certainly in the Oval Office, if you told the president to shut up, you'd never get an invitation to come back. But in the debate stage, do, do things change at all? And again, I'm not saying that that's okay, but they are to meet as equals in this freedom of the press, which is it's moderated by someone from the press. And uh, you, you also have them meeting as equals as members looking for votes from the citizens of a democratic republic. Yeah, I mean, here's the deal. You know, we can sit here and we can blame the president. We can blame Joe Biden. We can blame Chris Wallace. Uh, at the end of the day, I Kimberly just... Kimberly Guilfoyle. I mean, I... Really, <laughs> I just think at the end... Of, I think at the end of the day, the American people are to blame on this issue. I mean, we have so elevated the presidential election to something that is now of so, so monumental consequence that we can't even fathom the idea that it's not, it's not the most important thing in our lives. And I think also we, we treat it now as almost a spectacle. I mean, the way that the debate was marketed leading up to last night, it was like I was watching commercials for a big football game. I mean, that's the it way was. It, was, it was presented. And it was, you know, you've got, you know, for months, you've got people on Twitter going, Joe Biden's going to destroy President Trump. And like, oh, President Trump's going to give Joe Biden the schlacking he's been wanting to give him for four years. And it's like, is this a presidential debate or a WWE SmackDown? I mean, like, and, and Wall Street Journal editorial board. I, I mean, it's just it like, has. who's to blame for that? And I, I'm like, I look at Twitter. I'm like, oh, it's us. Like, we wanted that. That's what we were. It's what we wanted. And then we kind of got what we been asked for. And it's like, oh, this is disgusting. Why did we? Why did we want this? So, honestly, like, I hope no one watches the second and the third. Honestly, I mean, I don't know what else there is to learn in the next two debates. 
and I don't know how healthy it can be. Well, we're a somewhat hopeful people and there's a hope that it's better. I mean, I think I'll at least turn it on. I might turn it off if it devolves as quickly as it did last night, but I, I think I'll certainly watch the beginning of it to see what happens and how you mentioned the weight that we put on it again, the gravitas that we put on it. And you, something we, you talked to me about was when people say, do you promise to do such and such, or what are you going to fix? You know, for Biden, he says, I'm going to end racism in this country. And then Trump says, I'm going to destroy COVID. And what are they going to swear in when, when they, when they, get elected and they stand before the the chief justice of the Supreme Court, they promise to uphold the constitution. And is that what they are going to do? Because look, abolishing COVID is going to be pretty far outside of the president's ability to do on his own. Uh, ending racism is not in the jurisdiction of Joe Biden. That is not going to be something that he is going to be able to do. And I think that this, uh, elevation of the president is seen in people again to bring Ibram Kendi back in just because I can't believe this guy still has an audience. I cannot understand why people listen to him just because he's, he's not a very good thinker. Uh, he's, he's just an uh, instigator, but he wrote this article for the Atlantic and he talks about e pluribus unum. And he talks about, you know, out of many one and the one is the president. No, that is absolutely false. Out of many people is one country. And it, but it was enlightening for him to think that, that he thinks that the, the president represents everybody and that he is the one person upon all of our hopes hinge. And he carries all those like, first of all, we have a, you know, a balance of government here. So it's actually not just that. But again, there's an importance of the people at a local level. But when we put all this at the top, then all this crushing weight is put on something that was not, not the way this country was designed and set up to operate. Well, the, the thing about those questions about, you know, do you promise to do this? Do you, I, I know uh, Wallace was asking Trump, you know, do you promise to accept the election results uh, of whatever happens uh, come November? And I think, you know, Trump was asked to denounce white supremacy. Joe Biden was asked to denounce um, Antifa and the far left. It, interestingly, I mean, I, I think you could safely said, say that neither of the candidates when asked those two things to denounce their on their side, neither gave like the clear cut answer we all wanted, uh, which was, was really interesting. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, those questions themselves convey a false sense of certainty with the president. Like it, it's not like whenever we elect a president, we're guaranteed to get the things that their, their platform says, or that they promise us on a campaign trail. That's not how politics works. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't really even entertain those questions, right? Like, Kind of the thing that frustrates me about when, you know, when we talk about the, the situation with COVID and it's like, do you promise to destroy COVID as soon as possible? And, and you know, the, the sort of the humble answers of being like, I don't know how this virus works. Our scientists are still confused. We're trying to do the best we can. We're trying to do this. That might not work. So we just don't allow for that kind of nuance in our politics. And so we, we expect answers that are like, I will defeat co coronavirus by this date. And it's like, nobody can predict that. Nobody has the power to do things like that. Same with ending racism. I mean, it's just not, it's not within the purview of their office. And so, you know, we're electing somebody to be a decision maker and make key decisions in light of uncertainty. I mean, that should be something that we should talk about more in, in debates and in situations. So, and your point about the local level stuff, I, I think is so true because I was watching the debate last night and so much of it, I'm like, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. 
that doesn't apply to me because like, that's just not how things are on my local level. Do you know what I mean? There was an article that was put out by Vox and it was, how do you fix our democracy? And every single one of their answers to that question was about voting Hmm. and about fixing the voting system. And I thought, Hey, we're too far down the road. If that's what you think is going to fix a democracy, first of all, what do you think happens on the off years, either every other year or every four years? So how do you think this democracy is functioning? But the fact that so much is put on voting every four years or every two years instead of, hey, do you know your neighbors? Do you volunteer? Do you help pick up trash? Do you go to the parent-teacher meetings? Um, Do you volunteer at a high school? Like these kind of things that actually make a society work and people like, no, 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 no. Like what we need to really do is we need to focus on this stuff every other year, every, I don't know why I just went to that voice, but, uh, (laughs) but like the horse is too far out of the barn. Right. And we've talked about this on the show. Like it's putting a weight on our vote that it just can't bear. Like it just, it can't, but I, I understand why it becomes that thing, right? Voting is so, so much easier than getting involved in your local community. I mean, Voting is easier than, than meeting your neighbor at this point. I mean, it really is. It's, it's crazy to me that we've sort of accepted it and adopted it and gone, and gone with it. I mean, I don't know about you, but like my entire uh, social media feeds, commercials, um, advertisements on websites have all been about voting uh, for the last uh, month or so. And I, I just, I'm like, yeah, voting is important. You know, if you're really convicted to vote a certain way, do it, go for it. But like, please don't let that be the only thing you do. If we as Christians adopt the the premise that engaging in politics, integrating your faith in politics boils down to the way you vote, I think we've missed a rich tradition of of what it really looks like to be a, a citizen and have that vocation. Because I think that's it's way more robust than the way you check a box every two years. Yes, it is how you live in the day-to-day. And then the Christian, it's something that we used to call charity. And in our hyper-politicized age, our activist age, the term charity has been replaced by philanthropy. And the difference between philanthropy is philanthropy is a politically activated effort. So it is a goal. I will give you my money if you promise to do this or fix that. Charity is... I am going to give to care for these people immediately. I am going to give freely. It is from the root charis, grace. It is an act of grace. Um, And so I think that there's a connection here between this emphasis on voting all the time and a lack of emphasis on charity. Why? Because everything else that we see most of the time is this, everybody's acts of philanthropy are actually acts of advocacy or some vocalization. Right. Activism of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks. I mean, so we've got two more debates. I get what you're saying about tuning in just to see if it'll change. I, I, I think the way that the, that second debate goes will, will depend a lot on the polling that gets done after last night. You know, it, it could be the case that polling after last night comes out and says, we thought Trump did fine, but we really don't like it when he interrupts Joe Biden all the time. And maybe, maybe that will self-correct Trump a little bit. I don't know. That, that outcome only happens if last night really was as terrible for everybody as we're saying it was, which honestly could be. Maybe, maybe it is sort of a wake-up moment, a come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, for the American people to say, 
what have we done? Um, but I don't think so. I, the, the realist in me says, I bet there's a lot of people that liked it. It was a spectacle. And oh, will it be, do people thought it was awful? I think most people thought it was awful. Will it be a wake up call for the American people? No. So this is kind of my, my thing. Like, is it one of those things where it was so awful that we all kind of like commiserate with it together and it becomes one of those things that I don't know, we all tune in again next, you know, next week to do the same thing. Sort of like almost like a weird perverse political masochism. You know what I mean? Like we just like love how bad it, it's gotten. Like this is sort of like the um, old philosophical notion of like staring into the abyss and you know, the, the heart of darkness kind of mindset. Like we sort of like to peer in and, and see how gross it's been. I mean, how else do you explain a lot of the uh, op-eds and stuff that are coming out that are basically talking about a second civil war? I mean, that we shouldn't even be entertaining that kind of rhetoric. And still we all click on it when we see it because it's sort of that thing. I, I don't know. That's something I've been, I'm wrestling with right now after last night. Um, Cause if I'm really honest with myself, did I watch it and, and like it? No, I hated it. Would it be something I wanted to tune in and see again? If I'm honest with myself, I probably won't watch the second one. Did I have kind of fun texting friends back and forth about how absurd I thought something was or sending a little, you know, some darker tweets or memes with each other? Like if I'm honest with myself, yeah, like that was, that part was kind of fun. And I don't think I'm alone on that. Maybe I'm a weirdo, but I don't know. I think that's different. I, I think that there's a laugh to keep from crying at the absurdity, but I don't know. I, the, the the tweet you sent me that won the night was about Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> and it, if Ben Franklin could see this now, he'd have flown that kite from the bathtub. I thought, I thought that was so clever. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, I'm trying not to be a pessimist. I'm I'm hoping it'll get better. I'm praying that it will. I texted last night that we should be praying for the candidates. Um, but <laughs> there's a lot of people to be praying about during those debates. So yeah, if I, I don't know if we wanted to do winners or losers, but I think it's unequivocally the losers were the American people. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if there were any winners other than, uh, Russia and China who are probably looking on <laughs> their chops thinking this is what we're going to benefit from. Yeah. Insane, insane debate, insane night. Uh, it would be great if there was a better note to end this on other than the need to pray and to, and to remember uh, what we said that yes, these debates are important and yes, uh, this person will be the president of the country, but this is not where, our hope ultimately is. Uh, and this is where having a rich ecclesiology, a rich understanding of the theology of what the church is and how it operates is bringing immense comfort and of our, our role. But um, there is reason to be saddened for a country that is in the situation it is. Can I just, for a second, just, I feel like this is a good time for a plug for the ministry because I was watching it and I was like, wow, there's never been a bigger need for ministry to state, a discipleship ministry to folks 
who work in government uh, that exist for the sake of the gospel and not for policy or partisan politics, but just simply to see gospel transformation in the halls of our government. Uh, I mean, that's why we exist. Last night, what you saw, that's why Ministry of State exists. And so you should support us and check it out. Yeah, but we would never do a shameless plug like that. We would never do that. You, yeah, that would be, that would be so tacky. So. Oh. Oh. But thanks for saying that. Cool. Well, this has been, this has been fun. Maybe we'll do a recap of the second debate. We'll see. Who knows? But um, looking forward to see kind of how the next, next uh, few weeks shake, shape up near the election. Thank you again for listening to The Will and Rob Show. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at R.D. Hessler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Make sure to check out Ministry of State at www.ministrystate.org. Follow us at Ministry of State. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, send us a DM if you've got questions or thoughts about the debate, uh, how you thought about it. We'd love to hear those. And uh, with that, we'll see you guys again next week.